Good afternoon. So I'm going to start off with uh, an Austrian poet called Georg Trackel. He was an expressionist who joined the army in nine, uh, 1914 and unfortunately died there. So the poem is called Im Osten. Den wilden Orgeln des Wintersturms gleich des Volkes finstrer Zorn. Die purpurne Woge der Schlacht entlaubter Sterne. Mit zerbrochenen Brauen, silbernen Armen winkt sterbenden Soldaten die Nacht. Im Schatten der herbstlichen Esche seufzen die Geister der Erschlagenen. Dornige Wildnis umgürtet die Stadt. Von blutenden Stufen jagt der Mond. Die erschrockenen Frauen, wilde Wölfe brachen durchs Tor. Now we are moving to, to, to Italy, and Francesca is going to read her beautiful Italian poem. I'm going to be reading a poem by Giuseppe Ungaretti, who was one of the most prominent contributors to the 20th century Italian literature. He was born on the 10th of February in 1888 in Egypt, and he died on the 2nd of June 1970 in Milan, Italy. He also fought in the trenches in the First World War. The poem is called Fratelli. Fratelli, di che, di che reggimento siete, fratelli? Parola tremante, nella notte, foglia appena nata, nell'aria spasimante, involontaria rivolta, dell'uomo presente alla sua fragilità. Fratelli. Russia was one of the uh, main countries that uh, participated in the First World War, and uh, Lana is going to read a Russian poem. Um, this is a poem by Alexander Bloch, and he was truly one of the brightest stars of uh, Russian poetry. Uh, he was one of the few poets who actually joined military during the World War One, and this poem is... Um, it's truly a prophecy. He managed to sense the dark period that Russia was about to go through. Рожденные в года глухие пути не помнят своего. Мы дети страшных лет России забыть не в силах ничего. Испепеляющие годы безумие львас надежды львесть одни войны одни свободы кровавый вот цвет в листцах есть. Есть немота, тугул на бата заставил заградить уста. В сердцах восторженных когда-то есть роковая пустота. И пусть над нашим смертным ложем зовется с криком вороньем. Те, кто достойней, Боже, Боже, да узрят царствие Твое. Uh, I also would like to draw your attention to these uh, etchings. They were produced at the time of the First World War by the famous Russian painter Natalia Goncharova, who, uh, like many Russian intellectuals, responded to the call in the First World War and responded with these patriotic paintings. Uh, as you can see, there are images uh, with a lot of references to women because uh, 
in in Russia, the feeling was that uh, we are all standing to defend the country, our wives, sisters, and children. So that's why she refers to her women and uh, the idea of protection in this. Uh, images and uh, well the response among, among the painters uh, not only in Russia but all over the world was really interesting and significant and we'll uh, before we go to the uh, to talk about Sargent we wanted to show a yes. clip uh, about Yes, um, Olga's now going to uh, show us a clip of um, a short film which starts talking about the First World War in, I think, the arts, perhaps particularly in Britain, at the beginning of the conflict, and it focuses on uh, painters such as Paul Nash, I think, before then coming on to the painting that's going to be the focus of our uh, session this afternoon, uh, John Singer Sargent's uh, iconic painting, Guest. outbreak of the First World War, Nash described it as bloody and stupid. But the first actual reports from the trenches awoke his patriotism. By September 1914 he'd enlisted and would eventually be posted to Ypres. He was appalled by the death and destruction and the ravaged landscape. He was injured and sent home, but bravely returned as a war artist. He wasn't the only painter there. John Singer Sargent's ghast shows the blind literally leading the blind after a mustard gas attack, an experience Nash would actually suffer. Nash's teacher at the Slade, Henry Tonks, was at the front both as surgeon and artist, creating these images of men with faces cubistically rearranged by the weaponry of war. Nash expressed his own sense of the devastation and horror of war using the same symbolic language of landscape that he developed in the years leading up to 1914. And if you look at this dark, black hole of a picture called, with rich irony, we are making a new world, what it depicts is the aftermath of the Battle of Passchendaele. Uh, Nash had insisted that he be taken to the front line by his, in quotes, mad Irish chauffeur. Paradoxically, he saw more danger as a war artist than he had when he was a serving soldier. I wonder if, if these barren, broken, blasted trees aren't meant to conjure up his sense of how much he'd lost, of how much had changed in his world. Nash felt very much like the war poets, that he wanted to tell the truth. He wanted to show people back home, back in England, those who wanted the war still to go on. He wanted to show them what war was really like. He said, I want, I want them to see the truth and I want it to burn their lousy souls. brings us to um, our first guest speaker of the afternoon, uh, Richard Ormond, who I, I will introduce while perhaps, Richard, you're going to move to the podium to uh, discuss your... Um, or, or do you want to do it from there? From the Are you happy there? Or yeah, I'll stand up. Stand up, yeah. yeah. A few words of introduction um, of Richard to start with. 
Richard is one of the eminent uh, art historians, really, in the field of portraiture, especially, perhaps, um, in Britain. He started his career, at, I think, in Birmingham and has had a, a, a continuing interest, particularly in Victorian and 19th century art. Uh, the Pre-Raphaelites, George Frederick Watts, I think you're the president of the Watts Society, aren't you, in the, the Watts Museum in, in, in Surrey, um, and, and really transformed that museum in, in recent uh, years. And so Victorian art has been an abiding theme of yours. Also, uh, Lord Leighton's work. You, some of you may have visited Leighton House in um, Holland Park. If you haven't, go. It's one of the places to see. Um, and uh, with your wife, Leonie, who I'm lucky to say is here in the um, audience tonight, um, you've You've uh, produced the standard work on Lord Leighton. And um, you, after starting off in perhaps the 19th century, you then moved to the National Portrait Gallery and spent a large part of your career specialising in portraiture. And perhaps it's out of that that the, the work on John Singer Sargent emerges. But in addition to that, um, you've also got another connection that makes you well qualified to talk about war and art, which is that the second part of your career after the National Portrait Gallery was then spent uh, down in Greenwich as the director of the National uh, Maritime Museum, and I think we were talking just before coming on about the, the difference between the, the land conflict and the naval conflict and the way these things are commemorated after the, 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 the two major wars of the 20th century. Um, but since finishing at um, Greenwich and, and the Maritime Museum, you've devoted your life and considerable muscle power, I might say as well, to this project, which is the John Singer Sargent Catalogue uh, resume, which you are compiling with the assistance of Elaine Kilmurray. And there are how many volumes now, Richard? Um, I've got the proofs of volume eight. Seven are published. Yeah. No, I couldn't, and couldn't. Uh, there, there's uh, eight and nine. Yeah. And then that's, um, uh, that's the end. So I couldn't possibly have brought the entire catalogue resume. All in print. Yes. All Yale in University print. Press. Yes. A yes. snip at 50 quid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on, on that note, please can we uh, welcome Richard Orman to talk about John Singer's Thank you for that, uh, Angus. Um, uh, John Singer Sargent, just a very brief biographical background. Uh, here he is in the year before his death, 1924, uh, an admirable Edwardian, um, large, had an enormous appetite, big man, lots of energy, as you can imagine, with all those can acres of canvas he, he covered. He was born in 1856 to American parents in Florence. His parents became expatriate. His father was a, quite a good surgeon. Why on earth he didn't go home remains a mystery, but his wife, who had the money, uh, fell in love with um, culture in Europe. So um, Sargent grew up as a wandering migrant um, uh, going uh, south in the winter and coming north in the summer on a sort of expatriate trail. Uh, trained as an artist in Paris under Carolus Durin uh, and spent his formative years in Paris where he was something of a star uh, performer um, and went on to become uh, uh, then we'll see Madame Gautreau um, led to rather a uh, debacle. His portrait in Paris was mocked at by the Parisians and he came to England in 1886 and um, makes a breakthrough in his, his native country. He never lives in America but American patronage is very important to him and um, he um, uh, 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 comes into his own in the 1890s and becomes arguably the greatest Anglo-American portrait painter of his generation. But he was also a landscape painter, was a mural painter, and um, uh, 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 you'll see him here on the right in, um, 
in the Alps, um, looking, as somebody said, like a chicken emerging from an egg. Um, so, uh, and we'll go straight on in. I'm just giving you a little bit of background. Here's the famous portrait of Madame Gautreaux in the Met, uh, a Parisian beauty, uh, and this got right up the noses of the uh, Parisians at the um, Salon of 1884, caused a scandal. In fact, she originally had the, the thing off the shoulder and... Um, uh, uh, she was just too provocative, too sexy, and the picture is a wonderful picture. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so, in the wake of this, he, Henry James and other friends said, Oh, you do much better in England, but actually, it was rather <laughs> out of the frying pan into the fire, since English taste was considerably more conservative than French. Um, Lady Agnew was the breakthrough 1893. This dishy lady, um, rather panther-like, um, complex, interesting woman. Uh, uh, and this blew everything away because, you know, people felt she was just electrifyingly there in a way that the rather darker portraits by people like Herkimer and Orchardson um, simply didn't compete with this. It was just electrifying for uh, the public. So that was really the beginning of the great... Um, uh, uh, period of Sargent's ascendancy um, and then in 1907 to the shock and horror of society he gave up portrait painting in order to complete his murals and we'll come on to them in a little while and to paint landscape he really, I think he faced at 50 he thought how am I going to spend the last decade or two of my life and it wasn't painting portraits So, um, and he turned to these ravishing oils and watercolours, he's such a skilled performer. Uh, Venice, where his two artist friends uh, on the Judecca, one of the beautiful Villa Malia outside Lucca, uh, sort of just alive with light. And, and of course with Sargent he never, he never elaborates, it's all a kind of conjuring trick. Uh, there's far less there <coughs> than you ever think there is. And on the right, uh, his niece, uh, Rose Marie, um, <coughs> painted in the Alps in the pink dress with all those wonderful flowery flounces uh, and it's just worth recording that Rosemarie uh, had married she was brought up by her French grandmother and she was uh, married to a brilliant French art historian who was killed at the opening of the war and uh, Rosemarie a tragic figure um, was killed in Saint-Gervais um, in Paris when German shell brought the roof down and um, Sargent was absolutely devastated um, by the loss of this beautiful girl who'd been his model so many times in the Alps so that was a personal kind of uh, tragedy uh, uh, of course it's the war brings to an end all those Holcian holidays those sketching expeditions to various parts to Venice, to the Alps and various um, southern, mostly southern Mediterranean uh, locations and this, these two works were painted 1914 he was trapped in the Tyrol by the outbreak of war, he had great difficulty getting away and uh, this is really the last time he goes to Europe so the, the war brings to an end, sergeants sketching expeditions um, as a landscape painter to Europe 
And already, I think, the sense of impending disaster because the imagery of these Tyrolean pictures is full of crucifixes and um, graveyards. And this is a graveyard at Kolfosko. It was Kolfoschk then because, of course, it was Austrian. And another one, a watercolour of uh, um, those typical kind of uh, raw town um, uh, crosses in a, a game probably also in Kolfosko against a, a church wall so this impending sense of impending disaster uh, we now come on really to the um, uh, uh, I'm going to just uh, switch from Sargent to the um, uh, to the, uh, the war artists because um, uh, Sargent only Sargent spent a lot of the war in America working on his mural commissions uh, he crossed the ocean uh, he didn't tell his sisters exactly when he was going he didn't want to cause them worry and um, uh, so he really uh, only comes into the war when he's commissioned to do gas right at the end 1918 um, and uh, the whole war artist effort had really started around 1916 when some rather enlightened people thought we really ought to use the skills of artists uh, to record the war and so artists were sent hither and thither to record all aspects of the war. It was a most enlightened mostly through the Ministry of, of, um, uh, of uh, uh, Information and somebody called Alfred Jochny played a very big role in organising all this and sending them out because of course it was a it was a complicated uh, uh, matter and of course a lot of those pictures are in the Imperial War Museum they're also in other uh, the, my old place in Greenwich has a large collection of war pictures and there are others um, in other uh, museums and the Tate has some so these are just some examples rather tra- taken at random <coughs> this is Lavery American soldiers boarding a troop ship going out east uh, a wrecked tank so that's 1918 this is Muirhead Bone who was again um, prolific he also was um, equally uh, prolific in the Second War, um, uh, very well known for his architectural um, uh, engravings, etchings, uh, and a jolly good draftsman. So he was responsible for the wreck tank and the uh, the scene in a, a factory uh, producing aircraft. Those very flimsy-looking uh, craft that they took to the skies, and then. Already we've heard about, um, uh, you know, we were, we were making a brave new world by Nash. Uh, later on, the idea came of doing more considered um, pictures rather than the reportage of creating a hall of remembrance uh, was the plan uh, to uh, concentrate on the deeper uh, issues of heroism and sacrifice um, and... Uh, a lot of the younger artists were involved in this. It wasn't without controversy later, because, of course, some people felt that uh, all the whiz kids, uh, uh, Nevinson and Nash uh, and Bomberg um, and Wyndham Lewis, were, uh, shouldn't have been deployed to do this. They were regarded as being too avant-garde. So there was a definite split between the more, uh, uh, those advocates of the more traditional painters and those who... Um, supported these younger um, so this is really a group of uh, uh, of, um, uh, of Nash 
uh, and Nevins and Paths of Glory uh, with the uh, uh, two dead soldiers and the barbed wire and the mud and above um, Stanley Spencer um, I don't know if some of you saw the exhibition of uh, his paintings from Beauclair which I'll show in a minute uh, this is a, uh, a travois those are the um, stretchers uh, uh, being brought into a dressing station in uh, uh, in uh, 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 the Gallipoli this is part of the uh, in, uh, they were in fact in Greece um, they're being brought in and I'll just show you uh, Berkeley, yes, which is this, uh, uh, in Hampshire. It's a wonderful little chapel, um, and it all records uh, the um, different experiences that Stanley Spencer had as a hospital orderly out in uh, that's the, the Dardanelles campaign. Um, and uh, uh, the end wall is this great. Of, uh, a sort of transfiguration of people uh, rather like a last judgment except it isn't of these soldiers emerging from their graves with crosses it's an extraordinary uh, work but as I say that didn't actually come the exhibition was in Somerset House only a stone's throw away uh, but all the other panels came because they're detachable but the, the, uh, the transfiguration scene is um, is fixed to the wall. Uh, which brings us to Gast, um, which was to be the kind of centrepiece of this Hall of Remembrance. The Hall of Remembrance, of course, never got built, um, government being much too stingy at the end to actually fork out for this grand conception. But it was it's a huge picture, it's 20 feet across. Um, and Sargent was, of course, reluctant to do it. Um, he didn't really like official commissions of this kind. But um, having been asked by the Prime Minister, Lloyd George, he felt he couldn't, he couldn't refuse. And so um, gassed was the result of it. And it's just worth pausing a little bit. Of course, it's a picture that divides um, opinion. Some people think it's a, um, it's a wonderful, tragic uh, heroic picture and other people feel it's rather sentimental as compared with Nash and Nevis and all those here it's sort of a gloss on, on war um, it's uh, um, it's a huge machine really it wasn't painted at the front it was painted in his studio when he came back and it shows these figures who have become uh, if you look at photographs it's all rather humdrum but here Sergeant has created this frieze, like a sort of great classical frieze of figures, and how carefully the intervals between them, it's like a rhythmic group crossing over um, towards the dressing station. You can see the guy ropes of, of the station to which they're, where they're heading, uh, and they're led by an orderly at the front. Um, and in the foreground here, and behind the group there, are all sorts of prone soldiers who have obviously been treated and are lying out there in agony and in pain uh, and so it's a kind of vision of hell in a way in the foreground uh, and the whole scene is set against this absolutely luminous landscape um, uh, of an evening scene, the setting sun so important over there and you can't really see it in this not terribly good image but behind a football game 
is being played. Um, so there's the whole feeling of this serene scene, and yet within it, this appalling tragedy of these men who are blinded, mustard gas has the attacks the lungs and the eyes, and depending on the concentration, whether they, you suffer permanent long-term damage or temporary, or it's a more temporary thing. Uh, and um, uh, so th- this huge, vast canvas uh, with these men, and then this extraordinary, and even the sky behind, you might think it's all, actually there are some angry aeroplanes buzzing about that you can't really see. So even in the sky, there's, um, uh, war is taking place. Uh, so, um, and I'll just show you a couple of details. Um, yes, here are the, the guy ropes. There's a second group of men being led in here on the top right. And here's the group so carefully with the linking arms providing the rhythm across the scene. Somebody once suggested to me it's rather like stills from a film. These static as if they've just been abstracted as they're mm-hmm. moving. And I, Sartre was very interested in film, very interested in photography. And we've already talked about, he went out to the front with Henry Tonks. Um, uh, and you can see some of these in an exhibition that's just opened at the National Portrait Gallery called War Portraits. Actually, these weren't done at the front. These were done back in England uh, when uh, at, at the... Um, uh, I forget the name of the hospital, but they were specialised in um, uh, plastic surgery, and he was doing sort of before and after. There's Sergeant's portrait of Tonks at the front, and there's a watercolour by uh, Tonks, or sort of pastel of somebody being given a saline drip, some injured man. And Tonks also did quite a large scale picture of uh, the wounded coming into a dressing station with the ruins of a church behind. Again, a large scale. Uh, and Tonks is famous because he was the one who trained Nash and, and Stanley Spencer at the Slade. He was a marvellous teacher and um, a rather an austere man, trained as a, as a surgeon originally uh, and then became uh, quite a fierce teacher. He was really insistent that his students learned to draw. Um, so he was a great advocate of draftsmanship. And um, uh, Sergeant went out, um, uh, yes, the, um, uh, he was there for nearly four months, um, and um, uh, uh, particularly uh, with the, uh, sixth, the fourth and sixth corps of the British Army was where he was um, uh, particularly... Uh, um, stationed Um, and uh, while there he also did some uh, watercolours, a whole series of watercolours so he wasn't just working on gassed or his ideas for gassed a crashed aeroplane, this might be one of Sargent's uh, uh, landscapes from the pre-war period harvesting the corn except of course the aeroplane there and one of those lovely villas that he might have painted, but again, the, the damage, the war has, in, in, uh, has uh, arrived. And here's the interior of a hospital tent, all those lovely reds. 
against the sort of love them. It's wonderful the handling of these uh, loose, moist washes that he just dashes in, and there a wrecked sugar refinery. When you come up, it's 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 all done so swiftly, and yet he's absolutely got the feeling of this complicated structure, all and it, the feel of of, of iron. Uh, all mangled up, um, a sort of tour de force. And another watercolour again from this, uh, a ruined street in Arras, one of those great, wonderful, um, uh, sort of baroque um, entranceways, and the sort of shop between that uh, elegant uh, wall and gateway, and then this great hole with the car smashed up and two uh, two soldiers there uh, Sergeant uh, of course had a lot of difficulty uh, with the subject because um, uh, as he said um, uh, at the time the more dramatic the situation the more it becomes an empty landscape so the Ministry of in- in- Information expects an epic but how can one do an epic without masses of men? Well, of course, that's absolutely right. You know, most of the major battles, you don't see any men. They're all hiding or, or what have you. So he, um, he toyed with two or three ideas uh, before he arrived at, at Gas. One of them was, a, um, it was the idea of doing a, a, a road in which um, American and British soldiers, because of course America had entered the war in 1917, in which it would be shown the two armies collaborating. Um, uh, but uh, and that's a sketch down there for this alternative idea of the road. But in the event, it was the uh, uh, the gassed men that really most moved him, uh, and um, and you'll see a photograph. Uh, and you can see exactly what Sargent has has done between the, the rather factual uh, in creating this great um, emblematic work of art. And just to tell you, the yes, um, it was the in fact the, in fact, the exact um, uh, was the exact um, uh, uh, was the gas was caught some of the units of the 99th Brigade of the 2nd Division uh, who um, when the Germans right at the end of the war did desperate to stop the, um, the advance of the Allies and they used gas quite extensively and this particular um, uh, uh, event uh, was, uh, took place in, in April the dressing station was situated, this is Tong's writing, the, situa- the dressing station, which is the, the guy ropes, was situated on the road and consisted of a number of huts and a few tents. Gassed cases kept coming in, led by an orderly. They sat or laid down on the grass. There must have been several hundred, evidently suffering a great deal. Sergeant was very struck by the scene and immediately made a lot of notes. It was a very fine evening and the sun was setting. Uh, as I say, the um, uh, sergeant came back with ideas and sketches uh, and then worked up this composition uh, in his London studio using 
professional models, and here are some of the marvellous drawings he did, most of them in the Imperial War Museum, there are some elsewhere, but they're tremendous, and it's like any other great... I mean, Sargent was trained in an academic tradition, and Gast is, if you like, a, a major kind of academic machine, and it needed all these sketches in order for him to, um, uh, to bring it all together and to uh, make sense of the composition. And yet the picture itself is quite freely painted. It's not laboured. And I always feel with Sargent that he spent all the time planning. You know, he got it in his head, and then when he, when he knew what he wanted to do, boom, boom, boom. Uh, uh, yes, just <coughs> worth remarking that he's not afraid of composition on the large scale. 1890 begins his great series of murals on the history of religion in the Boston Public Library. This whole scheme, architectural enrichments, the whole lot, a kind of mini Sistine Chapel. Um, and uh, uh, he spends the next 30 years on this project and also does other murals in the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, and in the uh, library, the Widener Library at Harvard. Uh, and there you can see the freeze of profits and here the, uh, the, there's a pagan end and then the Christian end uh, uh, and uh, the two linked by various other scenes going on. This is the Egyptians and the Assyrians beating up the wretched Jews. Yeah. Wonderful. It's a mar marvellous uh, um, uh, ensemble. And uh, occasionally, too, here's a picture in the Alps of one of his young nieces, not Rosemary, the one who was killed, the other one, Wren, uh, in a sort of mysterious picture painted in the Alps, draped, the same model draped in this wonderful cashmere shawl, and uh, they're like votaries at a shrine. They're, you know, they're ennobled, um, and rather like Gast, very carefully orchestrated this design. Uh, across, moving across the, the field. Are they the wise or the seven wise or virg virgins or the foolish virgin? Anyway, of course, with Sergeant, he never, he, he never gets that specific, so you never know quite. Uh, and other sources, I mean, I'm just showing uh, Bruegel's famous The Blind Leading the Blind. Uh, so I think all these references deeply knowledgeable about art history a very very cultured man in fact next year I'm doing an exhibition on Sargent and the Arts at the National Portrait Gallery which is all his portraits of artists writers, actors and musicians and the subtext is that he's not just a great bravura painter but he's a deeply cultured uh, very musical very deeply read particularly in French literature uh, and very knowledgeable about art history and I've wondered, too, whether the guy ropes holding up the, uh, the, the, uh, the cross in Tintoretto's fantastic crucifixion in the Scuola San Rocco in, um, uh, in Venice, a picture on the same scale as Gast, whether he didn't have some sense. It's almost as if, you know, this is, they're moving towards a kind of place of safety and salvation. Anyway, that... You may think that's a bit far-fetched. I think the, um, the Burgers of Calais, Sergeant, this is a famous picture of, uh, by, of sculpture by Rodin. You can see it in the embankment gardens just beside the Houses of Parliament. Um, or one cast of it, uh, which is a terrific 
piece of sculpture. Uh, and again, it's about self-sacrifice, about sacrifice. Edward I has condemned the burghers of Calais to be given the chop, and Queen Eleanor steps in and makes a great plea, and they're saved anyway. There they are, looking, uh, you know, all um, in chains. Uh, and uh, Rodin was a great friend of Sargent's. He called him the Van Dyke of our times, and Sargent painted Rodin. Um, so I don't. I think that is a, a real source. And just um, to end, I hope I haven't gone on too long. Uh, that Sargent not only was inveigled into painting Gast, uh, but um, also the First World War generals. Uh, it's uh, Sir Abe Bailey, the South African tycoon, uh, uh, commissioned three pictures of the statesman uh, from Guthrie. The naval, uh, the admirals from Cope, Ayers Cope, and this great picture in the National Portrait Gallery of uh, the First World War generals. Uh, a lot of belts and boots, um, but still, none of them, of course, were present. He had to do individual studies, and then it's all put together. Um, but it's uh, uh, his other great, if you like, war picture. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, guided tour through Gas, this painting of Sargent's, and the other paintings of the period, and setting it very much in the context of Sargent's um, earlier work as well. Um, in a second, we're going to be having a, a discussion with um, Rachel about her, her work and how that relates to the First World War in the contemporary uh, period. Uh, but again, we're going to have a couple more poems uh, now read by uh, students, uh, this time different nationalities are. Yes, uh, because, uh, well, from the great American painter, I think that will be a good moment to commemorate all American soldiers who perished in the front of the First World War. And Connor is going to read a, a poem by a famous American poet. Well, I'm here representing the American contingent. <laughs> um, so uh, Edward Estlin Cummings, or E. Cummings in lowercase, as is, I guess, a representative of his style, was uh, probably arguably one of the most famous 20th century modern poets. Um, he has a large body of work encompassing over 2,900 poems, two autobiographical novels, plays, and he is also a painter. So definitely a large body of work. Um, the one I'll be reading from is from his uh, collection of 88 poems published in 1962 um, called Is Five. Uh, it was evocative of his war years. He volunteered after college to serve in the ambulance corps in Paris. <clears throat> and at being so close to the dying soldiers, um, I think he kind of got attuned to the platitudes of grief and suffering that were kind of sent home in letters and kind of the communication between the front lines and at home. And that's kind of what this poem is about. So, uh, my sweet old etc. i.e. Cummings. Uh, my sweet old etc. Aunt Lucy, during the recent war, could and what is more, did tell you what everyone was fighting for. My sister Isabel created hundreds and hundreds of socks, not to mention flea-proof ear warmers, etc. Wristers, etc. My mother had hoped that I would die, etc. Bravely, of course. My father used to become hoarse talking about how it was a privilege, and if only he could... Meanwhile, myself, etc., lay quietly in the deep mud, etc., dreaming, etc., of your smile, eyes, knees, and of your, etc. <laughs> Thank you.
now we'll move uh, across the sea uh, to another country of light forces, France. And Carl is going to read a beautiful poem. Hello, everyone. I'm going to be reading a poem by uh, Guillaume Apollinaire. Uh, he was originally uh, Polish, but he was born in Rome in 1880. It is in 1950, well, 1914 that he decided to join the uh, French forces, but since he did not have the nationality, he had to wait until 1915. Uh, continuing on the notion of correspondence, um, as you would guess from an Italian and Frenchman, it would be about a woman. Um, <laughs> so uh, he's writing back to Madeleine, which was his uh, fiance at the time, uh, but he also depicted in many of his poems the horrors of, of war. So uh, this is uh, Chef de Section. <coughs> ma bouche aura des ardeurs de GN. Ma bouche te sera un enfer de douceur et de séduction. Les anges de ma bouche trôneront dans ton cœur. Les soldats de ma bouche te prendront d'assaut. Les prêtres de ma bouche encenseront ta beauté. Ton âme s'agitera comme une région pendant un tremblement de terre. Tes yeux seront alors chargés de tout l'amour qui s'est amassé dans les regards de l'humanité depuis qu'elle existe. Ma bouche sera une armée contre toi, une armée pleine de disparates. Varié comme un enchanteur qui sait varier ses métamorphoses, l'orchestre et les cœurs de ma bouche te diront mon amour. Elle te le murmure de loin, tandis que les yeux fixés sur la montre, j'attends la minute prescrite pour l'assaut. Thank you. Thank you very much for the beautiful poem, and now we are coming to our native England. Um, I'll read a, a poem from Isaac Rosenberg, born in 1890 in the Falcons Den. He moved to England um, and was educated in one of the then poorest areas around Whitechapel before pursuing Jewish education on Baker Street. Um, he later studied at UCL, in which case he developed um, both an experience in painting as well as his poetic writings. In both cases, he displays significant innovation. So, break day on the trenches, 1918. Um, perhaps keep in mind I was written just a few weeks before his death. The darkness crumbles away. It is the same old druid, time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer sardonic rat, as I pull the parapet's poppy to stick behind my ear. Draw rat, They would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies. Now, you have touched this English hand. You will do the same to a German soon, no doubt, if it be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green between. It seems you inwardly grin as you pass. Strong eyes, fine limbs, haughty athletes. Less chance than you for life. Bond to the whims of murder, sprawled in the bowels of the earth, the torn fields of France. What do you feel in our eyes? At the shrieking iron and flame hurled through still heavens. What quaver, what heart aghast. Poppies whose roots are in men's veins drop and are ever dropping, but mine in my ear is safe. Just a little white with the dust. Thank you very much. And, uh, Now we are going to, to talk about, uh, uh, about bird song, which uh, uh, Rachel uh, adapted for 
for the Bouffier as a very successful play at the National Theatre. And uh, just to put us in the mood, I will show just a small clip of, uh, of this play. <laughs> Rachel, welcome to LSE and um, to the Literary Festival here for 2014. And no one could be more appropriate in terms of the subject matter that your uh, career has taken. Uh, you've um, now written, I think, possibly half a dozen plays and have had um, and originally a, a play on Rupert Brooke, which was uh, called The Soldier, which was put on in Edinburgh, and then here in the <coughs> George the Bernard Shaw Theatre, an apt connection with LSE, yeah. because of course Shaw is very much... Uh, lies behind the LSE's founding as a, one of the Fabians. Shaw, who had very negative views about the First World War. I don't know if anyone was present at the session we had last Wednesday, but he wrote this pamphlet, um, Common Sense in the War, where he said really things that nobody else dared say in 1914, such as stop, for example. Um, and he, war, uh, Shaw really reduced the whole of the First World War for him as a socialist to a, a conflict between uh, two rival um, groups of imperialists, as he saw them. Anyway, so you've um, had the, the work put on at the Shaw um, Theatre here in London, and then you've moved on from your own play, you've adapted uh, Sebastian Fox's best-selling novel, uh, Birdsong, and, um, for the very successful West End run that the play had in 2010, I think. And um, am I right in saying it's now being revived and getting a national tour? Um, right? It had a yeah. national tour last year, yes. uh, for about seven months, and it's just started touring again uh, this year. So I think it's true for about five or six months, I think. Yes. Well, can I perhaps just through a few questions sort of sure. probe your career and your interest, your abiding interest in the First World War? Um, your first play was called The Soldier and was about Rupert Brooke. Um, what in, why, why Rupert Brooke? <laughs> um, well, when I was 17, I read Birdsong and um, fell in love with it. I thought it was absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. And I... I don't understand in retrospect why, but I remember thinking as I was reading the closing pages on the bus on the way home from school, oh, I'd love to turn this into a play one day. I'd absolutely love to turn this into a play. And, um, and then when I, I were, 
carried on studying and reading and, and learning and growing up. And uh, I was doing an MA just around the corner um, at uh, it was partly at Kings and partly at RADA. And for my for the dissertation, we could either um, direct a play or we could write an academic piece or we could write a play. And um, Leonie, uh, Richard's wife, was one of my supervisors, and I think she was one of the ones who encouraged me, along with um, Lloyd Trott, who was a dramaturg, to write a play. So I thought, oh, I'll give this a go. I know, I'll adapt Birdsong. I've always wanted to do this. And, and I said to Lloyd, um, uh, yeah, this is what I'd like to do. What, what do you think? And he said, oh, no, you can't, you can't do that. Working title, have the rights. No, there's no point thinking about that. Maybe one day when you're, when you're a little more established. So I put that idea to the back of my mind. But by then I was absolutely certain I wanted to write about the First World War. There's something about it that I think the second you, you begin to discover what it might have been like to be an individual involved in the war, you can't quite let that thought go. We, we, we don't forget, we mustn't forget. So I knew I wanted to write something that, that commemorated and brought to the forefront of, of, of our minds again those who had fought for future generations, I suppose. So, um, so knowing that I wasn't allowed to touch birdsong yet... I, I ended up thinking, I know, I'll write something very much based on Birdsong and no one will know, I'll change the title <laughs> and it'll be, it'll be brilliant and very similar characters and themes, wonderful, no one will ever spot that. Um, and then one of my friends, uh, I think she read a draft of a scene and probably wasn't overly impressed, and she said, well, do you know much about the life of Rupert Brooke? And I quoted the soldier at her because, you know, like a good school child, I've learnt the, learnt the sonnet. And, um, and she said, yes, but his life was really interesting so I, I sort of um, settled along to the Gower Street Waterstones and um, being a broke student had to look in all the half-price <laughs> second-hand books on sale and there I discovered Christopher Hassel's wonderful biography of Rupert Brooke. So I purchased it on the spot for about £2, raced home and, um, and devoured it and thought, yes, this is a really interesting man that I would love to write about. Um, I had no idea that he was a socialist. Um, I, in my head, he was this golden-haired, golden-haired Apollo, I believe, in some... Churchill called him, and he was this um, aristocratic, wonderful young man who was jingoistic in every sense. That's what I thought. And then I discovered um, different truths about him, and I read lots, uh, lots of books, um, discovered that he was very for the poor law reforms, that he toured Britain in a horse and cart preaching to people about, about how we mustn't be so... Um, uh, well, I suppose... He was trying to eradicate the divide between the rich and the poor. And for someone from his background, I found that really interesting. And I discovered that he wasn't actually that jingoistic <coughs> at all. In fact, he, and he wasn't this great war hero, although obviously very, very brave of anyone at all to sign up to be involved in the first place. I, I just, but I discovered he was in the Navy. He only saw one week of action in Belgium. He was in a trench for a week in Belgium, and he died on the way to Gallipoli um, because he was bitten on the lip by a mosquito, and he died from acute blood poisoning. So I realised I had known absolutely nothing about him, and I thought, well, if I knew nothing about him, it might be interesting to dramatise the last year of his life um, and, and look at what his involvement was in the First World War. So that's where, really where that idea came from. Um, it's interesting what you say about the poor law reform and yeah. his socialism, because I think his socialism was Fabian yeah. socialism, wasn't yes, it, very was much? Fabian, yes. Yes. And which goes against the image which abides of Brooke yeah. just being a privileged person yeah. um, who someone never knew the realities and I don't think that's actually the truth is it he, he no. was a very concerned person in, in, in many ways and um, I, I think your play does much to sort of rectify that image oh, of, 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 of Brooke um, 
That's what I was attempting, but uh, a um, long time ago. I read it today for the first time. I haven't, I haven't looked at it for about ten years, and I thought it was the first thing I ever wrote, so I was reading it, dreading, dreading it, thinking this might be embarrassing. But I found a few lines that are a little anachronistic, but other than that, I thought, yeah, I pretty much stand by <laughs> my first attempt. Um, you, you say you've always wanted to adapt uh, this, this novel by... Uh, Sebastian Falk's bird song. Um, but how did you go about that? Because it's quite a big novel, isn't it? 600 plus pages, and the, your play is normal length of an evening um, play. So how do you reduce? Uh, well, I, I guess it depends which edition you use. I have the first edition, which is about 400 pages, and then I think um, the font gets bigger as it goes on. It's oh, now about 600 no, and a half. Well, I think initially I made a mistake, actually. Initially it was very long, very arduous. It was about four hours for the very first preview of the West End production. It did last just over four hours, and I, I can't believe everyone stayed to the end. Um, because I was just trying to cram, cram it all in. It's really... Um, may I just see, how, how many of you... Who, who has read it here, just so I have a vague idea of who I'm talking to? Brilliant, thank you. Well, those of you that haven't read it, it's all, it, it, the first section is very much set in 1910, um, in Amiens, before the First World War, um, Stephen Raceford is the central character and he's an English man who's been sent to France in order to look at French factories and industry and he falls um, passionately in love with um, a married Frenchwoman who's the wife of his host um, and the first section of the book charts um, Stephen's and Isabel's love story and then the second section of the book starts in 1916 and we meet Stephen again back in almost the same place in France, now fighting in the First World War, and it's about his experiences during the war. Um, and it was it was fascinating seeing a man going back to where he'd had the most intense experience of his life, but in suddenly very different circumstances, situation. Um, it felt as if that was the heart of it, a man returning to the same place. So that was my unified story. Um, it was about a man trying to understand what the war was for, how we can see and do the things he saw and did and still call himself human, human. How, we can, how we could have allowed suffering on such a scale why no one put up their hand and said, said this has to stop and I thought that was something I believed in fully I wanted to explore I felt was a story and a message that I would love to bring to life again for a new generation Birdsong was published in 93 so I was approaching it, it was about 15 years later um, and by now it's now on the school syllabus and mm. it's still so popular it's always in the best selling list but there's something about bringing it to life that I really felt I had to do and was, was adaptation a purely textual task? did you take the novel and just say this is this scene, this is that scene and we cut this bit or did you actually have to do extra work on the period and, and, and the context to, to make a play that comes off did you? Um, I read the novel probably about 15 times. I think I made various notes, lots of different colour pens, as I'd been advised by Stephen Jeffries, who also adapts lots of things. I went to a, a talk he gave an adaptation, and that's the one thing I took away from with me, is write notes in different colour pens. So if you're writing about theme, put that in green. If you're writing about character, put that in blue. So I, I followed that, and he was very, he was very wise. Um, I did find... Uh, I said to Sebastian... Any, any books you recommend I read in order to really get to know the, the period and in order to, fully under, to understand fully what you've been writing about? And he said, oh, no, it's all in the book. I've done all the research. Just read the book. And I uh, well, thank, thanks for that. And I said, yes, well, may, maybe I'll go to France. That would be good to, to see if I can visit all of these places and get a, get a real 
understanding of where this took place. And he said, oh, no, I've done all that. I've gone around all the places. But if you, if you like, and he sort of sent me, a, he sent me a long list of all the places I should go to. So I very dutifully went up to France and I visited every, from every single place on his list, apart from one restaurant in Amiens, which he told me was terrible and did awful food, so not to go there. Um, but I found, most importantly, I went to... Um, to Vimy Ridge, and I went down in the tunnels. Because Sebastian's novel, um, writes he writes beautifully and brilliantly. I think about the experience of the sappers. Um, I didn't really know anything at all about tunneling in the First World War, and suddenly to discover this whole hell within hell, this this underground war going on where men were trapped in tunnels for maybe 10, 12 hours at a time, um, 60 or 70 feet down, in stifling heat, relying on bellows pumping in recycled air. Mm. And sometimes they, they would even sleep in these tunnels. And knowing that you're crawling along, knowing that any moment, if the Germans break through, then you're face to face with an enemy who will, who will kill you. Um, and I think Sebastian wrote about that so evocatively. So I thought, well, I have to go down and see what these tunnels are like. So I did that, and it was... You know, I don't think I suffer from claustrophobia, but being down there, even for an hour or so one of the most well, yeah, <laughs> horrific yeah. experiences of my life and I'm there with a Canadian tour guide who's very cheerful and got a torch um, so that was really interesting I felt I had to do that um, I went round I, I did the walk um, where, sort of on the way on the 1st of July the day of the Battle of the Somme I walked the path where the soldiers would have walked um, in stifling heat imagining how they might have felt on that day I went to um, a graveyard again that Sebastian recommended that was one of the most beautiful peaceful places I've ever been to in my life and these perfectly kept white gravestones in rows, they're so neat they're so precise I was standing there in this little graveyard and roses out and planted and bushes and again streaming sunlight and touching the mud thinking of all the feet that have walked on this ground and I think that was the moment when I thought yes I, I do need to adapt this book and now I finally understand why because this is a story that we have to keep telling. We have to yeah. keep telling future generations. And Sebastian always talks about how it's just the blink of an eye. It could have been, could have been you, it could have been me, it could have been our sons, our brothers, our fathers out there. And it's just a, a two or three generations away. So it, it may feel like forever to, the, to you when you're a school child reading the poetry, but, but actually we do have to keep passing on these stories. And in the novel he does connect through to the present day, doesn't yeah, he? And he does. did you have to jettison that, I think, for... Services um, of make a play. Well, I remember uh, Sebastian saying, "How are you going to do it? There's so many strands in there." And I said, "Well, first thing of all, mate, I'm taking out your modern section." I said, "Well, oh, that's not going to work, is it?" And um, how did he respond to that? And he laughed at me, and then uh, and then I explained that the act. That I said, "The very act of going to the theatre, you are the modern character as the audience. You're the one going on the quest. Elizabeth goes yeah, on in yeah, the book yeah. to try to understand what this war was for. What our grandfathers." Um, representative in this rather than our actual grandfather might have done for us so it's the same it's the same journey but the audience is making that rather than Elizabeth and that going out at the interval when you go to buy your glass of wine and you're in the queue for the toilets and it's all very busy and frenetic that is the metaphorical slap in the face reminding you of the relative thinness of our modern lives it might seem um, compared to the, what, what you're experiencing which is I think what Elizabeth feels very strongly in the modern section in the book. So I, I did feel um, from the very beginning that that was a section that we mustn't put in the play. Um, the guy, the, um, so Trevor Nunn directed the first version, and that I think was reasonably successful. Yeah. I don't think it was as great as you claim it was. And then um, uh, I rewrote it, 
and it was picked up by a very different um, director and he was insistent we put the modern section back in so we wrote a frame for it oh. and, um, and that production was actually much more um, mm. I was much happier with the, with the um, touring production it's still going on, you can catch it now if you want to go to Tunbridge Wells tonight you can yeah. get the 5 o'clock train from uh, Charing Cross uh, anyway, um, so, so we put the modern section back and we were really pleased with it and we thought this actually does work having that frame, reaching out, saying this is us, this could be you um, and then it got to the dress rehearsal and we all looked at each other and said this doesn't work so we cut it again so, so it's not there, you'll never see it so I had to rewrite my programme she was explained how we cut it and then why I put it back and now <laughs> that's all gone yeah. so uh, yes, the modern section went um, Trevor Nunn was, was, is a brilliant director obviously and he, he um, suggested that I lose the character of Michael Weir so those of you who know the book um, Weir is probably my favourite character so that was a heart-wrenching decision to make, but he was absolutely right. And he said to me, you can't do justice to the story of all these very rich and complex characters. You need to streamline. And um, Stephen, in the book, had, Michael Weir is Stephen's best friend out in the war, but we felt that the, the trick was to keep Stephen as isolated as possible, so that when you meet him in the, in the war in 1916, he's utterly shut down. And then actually the experience of what he sees and experiences by the end, when he's learnt that he has a child, when he's learnt, when he's encountered Isabel's sister Jeanne, when he, who believes that mankind has to keep going no matter what, the birds will always sing, no matter what. Oh, yes, Sebastian's always saying to me, can you get into interviews why I called the thing birdsong in the first place? Oh, yes, yes. People are always asking him. And and he says, um, uh, it's a sort of double-edged swordness of it that whatever happens... Mankind can blow each other to bits and the birds keep singing. Indifferent, utterly indifferent to human lunacy. And on the other hand, on the other hand, isn't it extraordinary? We can blow the world to bits and the birds will keep singing. Isn't that moving? Isn't that beautiful? So it's the, the two the double edged nature of that. So there we go. That that's why why he called it birdsong. Yes, thank you. And um how did um rehearsals if did you have author and director as well as yourself? present or not because that would be an interesting um, situation <laughs> well fortunately for the first version um, uh, Sebastian was in France because it was August I think and I think he holidays in France in August yeah. so he was there for the first day and actually I thought it might be interesting I hope he doesn't mind I forgot to ask him I thought it might be interesting to bring along something he asked me to read out on the very first day because it was he wrote quite a beautiful email about it um, but he wasn't in rehearsals for the first production, although he'd, re- he'd read lots of drafts and we discussed it and he'd given me many notes and we'd, we'd, he'd actually been incredibly supportive. And then for this last production, he's been much more present. And um, he was even in it, in the production in Brighton. Really? He had a little cameo role. And uh, I gave him six lines. He was very keen on having quite a large role. I gave him six lines and he forgot one of them. <laughs> so uh, he's going to be in it again this year and I'm only giving him five. But um, he said, uh, this is what he wanted me to say to the cast on the first day of rehearsal. Good, good morning. I'm high on a hill in southern France, but thinking of you all in London. First of all, thank you to each and every one of you for joining in this adventure. I was reluctant at first to believe that a fairly long novel, full of description, could be transformed into a short play full of dialogue. But over time, I've been persuaded by Rachel's, etc., etc. Talks about my talent, for the moment. Uh, and uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then when he saw the dress rehearsal that afternoon, that was last week, I felt there was a chance we could create something unusually powerful on the stage. It's 20 years now since I conceived the idea for Birdsong, 
and my first feeling when I began was that I could now never carry off something of such ambition. And I think this is the interesting bit. To go over ground familiar to some and to try to frame new questions. No one had ever seen before 10 million people killed for no reason. What did it feel like? And what did these events tell us of what it means to be human? Every day as I wrote, I felt how absurd I was even to attempt such a thing. But every day I forced myself on. These characters, Stephen, Isabel, or the others, are invented, not based on anyone who lived. I asked a great deal of them. However, what gave me the strength to carry on was not so much what I felt for them, though it was great, as the outraged anger and the sorrow I felt for those real men and women who had undergone those experiences. I hope that you can all draw on that same well of passion and make the same gesture of love and understanding to those who went before us. I know that superstition forbids me to extend my good wishes in the words that seem natural. Sebastian finds it very funny that we're not allowed to say good luck, or I hope it goes well in the theatre that you have to say break a leg. <laughs> so I can only say that I'm with you in spirit, and may the spirit of Stephen and Jack and millions like them be with you too. And I think that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to, uh, we were trying to embody all of those questions Sebastian was posing in his novel. And I, I suppose the fact that he, he... I think he came along to the West End one about eight times, you couldn't keep him away, and, and the fact that he's coming up in a couple of weeks to see it again in Birmingham, he's probably seen it almost as many times as I have. Uh, I, I think it, it shows that even if... Uh, whenever you see any adaptation, you'll always come out saying, why have they cut that bit? And I can't believe they changed that bit and they've lost that bit. But I hope what we have done is honour the heart of his beautiful novel and... and um, embody with living human beings why he wanted to write it. So I hope that's what we've done. <laughs> Thank you very much for this fascinating insight, insight into both your own work on the First World War and this adaptation of this, uh, I think, modern classic yeah. of Falk's Burt song that has been produced. And if you can get to Tunbridge Wells or wherever it's wherever next act, do go <laughs> if you haven't seen it. The, the stage version is well worth seeing. Um, well, I think I, now I should um, really like to, I think, open uh, the, the, the evening to the, the people who've come for some questions. But perhaps before that, I'd just like to ask uh, Richard one question. Did Sargent produce that huge painting, which is much, much bigger than I think anything he'd ever painted before? Did he paint it on his own, or was he assisted? Uh, as far as I know, the, there's, no, there's no mention of any assistance. He didn't generally employ any assistance, but... Um, yeah. I mean, he was used to covering. I mean, the the, the, the murals from Boston were infinitely larger scale things. So, gas was. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I yes, mean, he yes. was used to covering. Um, and uh, so, in the context of what he's yeah. doing in Boston, gas is not such a. It's not such a huge. And he does, and he does the Boston murals pretty well on his own as well. well yes, he's, he's going to do yeah. full tilt. I mean, mm. he, he finishes the murals after about 30 years in 1919 and then he does the ones in the Museum of Fine Arts between 1916 and yeah. his death in 1925 well, that, that's, sorry, a, that's a, a, oh sorry let's speak again yes so, um, so it was all Sargent's own work this enormous canvas is, yes, is very much yes, his, it's, as far his as I yes, know yes. unless anybody can, yes. can tell me different and a question for, for Rachel I'd, I'd like to ask you. Um, you. You've written a play about Rupert Brooke and then you've adapted Birdsong. And in Birdsong, everybody's invented. It's not, yeah. it's not like um, uh, Pat Barker, where we have real figures and invented figures in the same fiction. Where do your sympathies 
uh, fall on that question. Do you prefer uh, fiction that doesn't, or, or work that doesn't mix factual history and um, invention, or do you do you not have a view? Well, I, I love Pat Barker's work as well. I love Regeneration, uh, the trilogy, and Life Class, which I think I don't know. Richard, have you read like Have you read Pat Barker's Life Class? Oh, this is the one about the yes. sleigh, doesn't yes. it? Yes, yes, yes. yes. I think that's yes. a wonderful book. Yes. And again, yes. and and, um, and then Toby's Room, and both of these books. Um, Henry Tonks is a, is a well, a smaller character, but he's an interesting character, and Nevinson as well. Yeah. Um, and, so yeah. I, I personally, I, I really enjoy reading fictional works that in, that incorporate um, real life characters. I don't have a problem with that. I remember doing one panel discussion. I was only about twenty four. I was in, at the Edinburgh Festival, and it was again about the soldier, and, and um, first thing I'd ever done in public. And this very fierce Scottish lady, Kate Copstick, who's you know obviously a wonderful woman and great fun, but she was shouting at me, "Why are you?" I'm not sure she swore. "Why are you messing with icons?" Because I'd written about Rupert Brooke, and I thought, well, I, I enjoy reading about people, real people who existed. We, I enjoy seeing biopics, but I understand that a lot of people don't. So my husband is very strongly against them, and I can't understand why I can't <laughs> just make people up. But uh, I, I find it really interesting to learn about real-life people, so that's why I like to write about them, or to read about them. Yes, well, th- thanks. Yeah. I think on that point, can I perhaps open the session up now to uh, the, 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 um, the whole um, group? And has, has anybody got any questions either for Rachel or for Richard on, on their presentation this evening? There's a question, question over here, yes. Um, there's a question for Rachel. Are there microphones? Or? Yes, a microphone just coming. Hi, it's about the, how you experience the novel Birdsong. Um, do you have yourself a, a kind of central part where your heart is really fixed on? Uh, for me, it's the tunnelers and the miners. Yeah. I found that so gripping. I, I could read that over and over again. and It's so fantastically well described. But, you know, there are all these other narratives with the, uh, the love affair, etc., and the description of... Um, French bourgeois life, etc., uh, and all these other things where he holds up in a destroyed house and so on. Um, what is it about you that, for you, that's the, the the most evocative part of the of the book, or is it all equally wonderful? Well, I don't want to seem um, as if I'm stealing your your idea, but for me, it's the tunnelers as well. I think um, just the 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 power of the description Sebastian uses and the way he plunges you into these worlds and the relationships between the characters. So I think Stephen is the main character in the play, but Jack Firebrace, the one of the tunnelers, is, is really, he's the guy that has my heart. And he and Stephen, I've made sure they have parallel journeys that keep overlapping and they keep meeting and not quite meeting, just so we can really bring in the story of the tunnelers. So Jack, re- I mean, in the reviews, Jack Firebrace always gets singled out as the, 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 the most you know, brilliant actor because he, I think he's the most lovable immediate he's the most immediately lovable part and you just connect with him straight away this guy this normal man who was before the war was digging out the tubes so when I remember coming back from rehearsal one day sitting on the tube thinking the fictional Jack Firebrace dug this tube line mm. and, and he was just digging the tubes and then he signed up to fight in France thinking it was just another tunnel but the pay was better and there's one brilliant line in the book where he says, um, where Sebastian writes, um, all the boys back home used to complain about the food out here in France. I never told them it was better than what I got at home. 
just the sense of this, this just bloke just getting by who just, just came out to, and they never told us I'd have to fight he says and so the, the bit that really gets me I don't want to ruin it for everyone else who hasn't read the novel yet go and read it or come to the play and the bit that really gets me is when and his son's not very well mm-hmm. and I think that's yeah. just one of the most beautiful moments that there's this man out there in the middle of the first world war tens of a million people will die but for him it's about the life of one little boy and um, I noticed when I read The Soldier today <laughs> that I'd stolen a line from Birdsong. There's a lot that I've obviously stolen from Birdsong. Um, where in, in Birdsong, I think it's probably the, the best line for me, in the, one of the lines for me in the novel that, that will, will never leave me, is Jack says to Stephen, can I go home and see my son, so he's, he's ill, he's got diphtheria, he might be dying. And Stephen says, half the world's dying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, to, but to you, the reader, at that moment, all you care about is this little, this little boy. So I think it's the story of the tunnelers and Jack vibrates really. But then, of course, there's so much else to love. When Michael Weir goes home, and he goes, Michael Weir's been out in France for two years. He goes back home to see his parents. He doesn't tell them he's coming back. He's just given leave. He goes back home to see his parents. I had to cut the scene because obviously Weir is no longer in the play, um, and and his, he he can't find his parents. They're both he, they're sort of both out of the house. His mum's at church and. He finds his father out in the garden and he comes back in, having not been home for two years after everything he's experienced. And he says to his father, Hello. And his father says, Shh, I'm just feeding the toad. <laughs> and they don't ask him once about the war. They just tell him off for getting so thin. I think that, that, that's a brilliant mm. scene. And the way he captures, the way Sebastian captures the apathy or the ignorance or the inability to hear mm. from those back home, whatever it was. I think you touch on an important point there, which is people, a whole generation of people who probably simply didn't want to talk about the First mm-hmm. World War, people who'd actually been there. Mm-hmm. I know from my own grandparents and people that there was a TV series in the 60s, wasn't there? I think it made Jer- Jeremy Isaacs his name, <coughs> The World at War or something. But I know that people who'd been there on the Western Front did not watch it. They mm-hmm. couldn't, couldn't face watching it in many instances. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we're now in a different period in history where we can perhaps more freely? In, in, engaged simply because it's further away and doesn't. I, I wonder if it's a collective guilt or embarrassment in some ways that we that other people who weren't involved in it weren't able to or didn't or couldn't then. So a hundred years on, we feel we have to now because otherwise, otherwise this is it. If we don't commemorate now, then then when will these individual sacrifices be remembered? And we were talking about the Michael Gove debate. Whatever your feelings are on how we should remember the war. I think you can celebrate individual courage without celebrating war. I think that's really important. Um, a, a chap, we, we, um, with Bedsong, we hold a collection most nights for Help for Heroes. And there's a guy called Tom Stimson who came to give a talk at the Bedsong launch um, a few weeks ago. And, and then he came to the first, I think it was one of the first nights in Eastbourne last week or whenever it was. And, and he came up to me um, afterwards and he was just crying and he was just saying... That's, that's me, that's the boys out in Afghanistan now. That's what we're doing, that's what we're feeling. Like, how have you just done this? You've re- adapted someone else's work about a war 100 years ago, but that's, that's everything I've just been through. And, and you know, what, what do you say? Um, but that was, that was probably one of the most humbling mm. yes. experiences, just to know that, yes, you're writing you're about the Great War, but you're also writing about the war now. Are there, are there further questions, perhaps? Um, anyone else? Yes, a, a question at the back. This is a question for Richard to sort of continue the cosmopolitan uh, tone. 
Um, I was interested to hear you say that there were uh, official uh, war artists. Was this the same in other uh, belligerent countries, in France, in Germany, and so on? And if so, was a different sort of art produced? Um, Well, I I know a little bit, because uh, at Greenwich we had a whole lot of um, uh, German First World War pictures that were nicked at the end of the Second War. And there was one particular picture that had come from the Naval Academy at Flensburg. They had the whole room and the panelling from which this picture of submarines, a big picture, not quite as big as the sergeant, had been lifted. And I remember saying, asking the Foreign Office, saying, well, we've been requested to return this, and it seemed a very good cause because the, the room was there... And they, the foreign office said, oh, no, for goodness sake, don't do that. We took so much stuff. You'll open a can of worms. But, uh, but I gather it has gone back. It, the Germans did do... I don't, uh, of course, you don't know so much because they don't have imperial war museums uh, yeah. uh, in the same way. But um, there were quite a lot of German uh, uh, painters. Whether they were organised, I'm not sure. The French certainly did um, have... Uh, uh, um, uh, but I'd, I'd have to pass on... Uh, on um, I suppose one would have to go to the Invalide or, yes. or somewhere to see what... So I'm rather yes. at sea about... Uh, one ought to know no, more I, I, about I, the French. Um, uh, I mean, of course, you do get some of the, the uh, Delaunay and um, uh, some of the Cubists did, did, do, did do war pictures, uh, but there must have been more traditional painters as well. Um, I'm, I'm yeah, struggling I would a bit. Thought, uh, um, I mean, it's not, not a belligerent, not a, an, an enemy country from the, from the British or Allied point of view, but um, certainly Wyndham Lewis was doing work, I think, for the Canadians, wasn't he, as well yeah. as for uh, the British. So um, I think, yes, some of the other countries clearly did have official um, war artists uh, engaged but I, I don't actually I'm ashamed to say no the answer all, the, it's a the good point yeah. there, there, there ought to be a, uh, somebody ought to write up the, the yeah. war artists internationally yes, on a, a very very yeah. good project on a comparative basis it would, yeah. it would reveal a lot yes. I think. there must have been in Russia up to the revolution there must have been some traditional painters <clears> depicting the scenes on, on the front I would imagine um, presumably lost then and then everything is changed from a with the revolution taking the, the country out of the war, I suppose, yeah. Well, they may not have been considered, uh, you know, um, uh, politically correct. Indeed, yes, yeah. I think political imperatives took over from the last, last year of the, of the conflict there. But um, are there any further questions? Yes? Can I ask a question which goes back to what Rachel was saying? Uh, to what extent does it make a difference that the First World War is become history in the sense that I think I'm right in saying there aren't any survivors left. Isn't that so? Yes. And does that make, does that make a change that there aren't people who can, as it were, come along and contradict you on the basis that they were there? <laughs> um, I think when I first approached Sebastian, there were five veterans still alive. Um, and then in 2009, Harry, in August, uh, July 2009, Harry Patch died, and he was our last living veteran. Um, although Sebastian did tell me recently that he only served for about three months, although I can't imagine being out there for three hours, let alone three months. Um, but Sebastian said he only served for three months. He didn't really want to be there. He lived for 90 years after that, and yet all people ever asked him about was the First World War. Um, I think 
I, I felt very strongly that's why I wanted to do it because I felt that the connection, the living connection was slipping away and someone had to keep passing the baton on but I also felt very aware of a deep responsibility towards wanting to capture a truth and I wasn't there and wanting to get it right and to honour the reality rather than to create some romanticised version um, and Sebastian and I talked about that quite considerably the, the responsibility to the book to the readers that love the book and also to the reality and I think you can evoke a, a general truth through a particular fiction um, Sebastian said that he felt he had to go I guess he, he made the journey 20 years before I did when there were still people alive and he said that he stood by those gravestones with veterans who had fought and one story that he d- he um, he still wells up when he talks about it is that he was standing by a gravestone with this man who said that's my best friend I haven't seen him for 60 years and I was there when he got blown up in that field over there and I was just standing there and then he'd gone and the, and Sebastian, Sebastian told me the story and he's, he talked about the sense of wanting to get it right and he felt he had to go and interview people and speak to people but he said the problem was no one really wanted to talk about it mm, yeah, yeah. so we are very reliant on letters and um, you know, documents and photographs and paintings and accounts that get passed down but I guess if the option is either to not write about something because you weren't there and you don't know anything you don't feel you know enough about it so you feel fraudulent so either option one don't write about it or option two try your very best to find out as much as you can and then write about it I, I naively opted for option two feeling that, that I sort of had to um, but I guess you always get someone that's going to turn up and say well actually oh yes this did happen after the, the production in the West End I got this very long email from someone telling me that no there was no tunnelling in 1918 it all wound down and of course that's the climax of the book really and it's the climax of the play that the guys are trapped in the tunnel in 1918 just as the war is ending will they survive or not and, uh, and then this man pointed out to me well that wasn't right at all so what do you do do you say oh right okay we'll change the play or do you say well actually artistic license yes, yeah. talked about that yeah. this is a story this is a fiction to represent something more general which is so, the point for, for Sergeant and the gas painting as well isn't it you know ultimately well it is yeah. again yeah. It, it's uh, um, gassed is a greater truth because it's not the actual um, but it's art considering something at a distance and creating a work of art that may be imaginatively more true to experience than a piece of, of documentary art mm-hmm. um, but uh, I was interested in what you, you say, if, if you go to um, uh, outside Soissons that whole um, uh, area they're still steeped in it um, I remember going to the uh, Croy little village or little small town outside Soissons where the, my great my aunt and her husband lie buried that um, uh, and going in and seeking the tomb and being taken out there by the mayor to where it was and it was in immaculate order and every armistice day this tomb is one of the sites that they they mark out the boundaries and they're absolutely in that area uh, they're all the, the cemeteries, all the museums there they, they absolutely live the First World War still the, the, that uh, area of France Well I think on that note of things um, lasting and continuing I, I'd perhaps like to bring I, I think this session to a, to a close but I'd, I'd like to thank Rachel Wexler, thank you very much for your contribution on Birdsong and your own case and thank you very much.